want to thank you and I want to welcome all of you to our live stream. So if you've never checked us out before, uh, my name is Tommy Moore. Uh, this is Mercy House. We're really glad that you are listening along with us this morning as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you haven't uh, listened to any of our sermons or if you're not caught up on the sermon series, I recommend that you check out our podcast. If you just search Mercy House, one word in any podcast service, you'll be able to find us uh, and you can listen to all the sermons that we've ever preached on there. So. Uh, check that out if you haven't. Uh, I want to start by saying that Ecclesiastes has probably easily been the most challenging book uh, to preach through for me. So a little bit about me. If you don't know me, uh, I'm not a seminarian, so I don't have any formal training. Um, I, I don't eat commentaries for breakfast. I'm a pretty slow reader. I have a pretty short attention span. And if you haven't noticed, Ecclesiastes isn't exactly like an easy afternoon read, both in its content and in the way that it's structured. And I want to take some time to share this because as I tackled preaching the hardest book I've ever had to preach this week, I actually tackled the hardest passage in the hardest book uh, I've ever had to preach on. And here's what I want to say, uh, and I want to encourage you. It's okay for you to open your Bible, um, to read a passage, and actually have no idea what's happening in that passage. That experience is totally fine. Um, it, it's, it's pretty normal. It might even be appropriate, um, an, an appropriate initial experience for you to have as you read the Word of God for the first time. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're dumb. It doesn't mean uh, that you're not holy. It doesn't mean that there isn't meaning there to be had in some of the tougher passages and books of the Bible. But kind of like a lobster, right? If, you ever, if you've ever eaten a lobster, you might need some special tools. You might need a little, a little bit of extra elbow grease and some patience to get to that meat, which is eventually going to be in there. And so the next time you sit down and you read the Bible and you come across something that's confusing, that, that doesn't make sense right away, don't just skip over it uh, and kind of check the box. Okay, I read that passage. Hopefully tomorrow will make a little bit more sense. Uh, don't just flip to a psalm or don't just flip to the Gospel of Mark. Really commit yourself to dig into the passage. I think a helpful acronym is HELP, H-E-L-P. And so H stands for Holy Spirit. I'm not very good at acronyms, but hopefully this will be helpful to you. H stands for Holy Spirit. And so the idea that if you are a Christian, and you have uh, the Spirit of God living inside you, that's a resource that you can use to help understand and interpret Scripture. The Holy Spirit, which first miraculously revealed the mystery of the gospel to you, is, is going to be able to help you understand Scripture. And so uh, we've got to remember that the Bible isn't just any old book that you're flipping open and reading. The words are living and active. We see that uh, articulated in Hebrews 4.12. And each word is breathed out by God. Um, and it, it's profitable for teaching, uh, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. And so there is this spiritual aspect to reading Scripture. And so you can ask the Holy Spirit that he would open up your heart, give you eyes and an understanding uh, to be able to comprehend the passage. E, educational resources. So commentaries exist for all levels of study. We were just talking about how certain commentaries are way up here. And you need to have a PhD to even understand the commentary. And some of them are picture books, right? So you've got everything in between. Really encourage you to use those uh, and, and, and ask people for recommendations if you don't know what to read. Ask Robert, ask any of our elders, oh, what are some good commentaries that I should be checking out right now? Uh, if you don't want to ask someone, scour reviews on Amazon for different resources and then check with our elders to see if it's a legitimate uh, commentary. But there are tons of resources out there and would recommend that you check those out if you run into a passage that's difficult. 
L for laboratory, so lab it out. So if you've ever been in class, a lab, you're working with your peers, uh, take time to talk with others about a difficult passage. Ask other people for insight. Um, talking about scripture within community can really help us process through some of the themes, really help us understand things that we may not be able to understand or just even think of if we're reading it in isolation by ourselves. And P, maybe the most important is to really ponder a passage. Meditate on scripture. Psalm 1-2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This isn't like a rote activity. It's, it's because it's, it's a delightful experience to be uh, mulling over and savoring the word of God. And in that process of mulling over and savoring and pondering it um, comes a better understanding of a passage. And so I've had a lot of help, H-E-L-P, this past week on this passage. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we take the time and the energy to record uh, the sermons each week and, and, and why we record this and, and try to distribute it because uh, we can all, as a church family, benefit from the help, the H-E-L-P, of the preacher. So when Robert preaches... He doesn't just sit in his basement on Saturday night and jot down four uh, points on a sticky note, sticks that in his Bible, and then wakes up and preaches. That, that's not at all what's happening. So Robert, he, he labors. He, he's wrestling. He, he's studying. He's reading. He's meditating. He's, he's grappling, and, and he's really spending dozens and dozens of hours. Uh, and we as a church, as Mercy House, get to sit here and just eat it up on a Sunday morning. So Mercy House, I've been really appreciative of this fact, and I want us as a church to not take the preaching of God's word at Mercy House for granted. And for many of us, I know personally, it's like a buffet after a week in the desert. And so Mercy House, I want to encourage us to, to dig in this morning and, and eat uh, some of God's word. So jumping into the passage, we want to start by talking about this word fool. Because it comes up quite a bit in this passage. So fool or folly, those two words are found around 221 times in the Bible. So second only to the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes mentions the fool 32 times. And a quarter of all of those times is right here in chapter 10 alone. And so what we have, um, as the author of Ecclesiastes begins wrapping up his writing uh, in one of the most dense passages. Uh, this is one of the most dense passages in all of Scripture outside of Proverbs on the fool and their folly. And what we'll see as we unpack chapter 10 this morning is, is the pervasiveness of folly in man and, and how we are to live as fools in this world. So starting in verse 1, I'm going to read this. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. The, the author opens this section with just a lovely image. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off stench. Now, this is interesting because the scent of dead flies is not actually going to overpower the scent of perfume. Uh, but the point that the author is trying to make here is that sometimes it doesn't take very much to spoil something good. 
So imagine that you have a delicious meal in front of you, prepared by a world-famous chef, right? And, and you go to take a bite, you look closely, and there's just like a curly little long hair weaving through that rigatoni or whatever your favorite dish is, just curled up all in there, and you start to pull it out, and it's just getting longer and longer and long. It's not quite as appetizing after you see that little hair, is it? In, in comparison, it's just a tiny little hair. It, it shouldn't be that big of a deal, but it is. I, similar to this, I never let my daughter Davy take a sip of my drink because she's a notorious backwasher. And, and it, all it takes is one little cute baby sip and then I've got like floating chicken in my water, right? And I love my daughter. And as much as I love her, I just can't bring myself to drink chicken water. This is one of the things where I draw a hard line. What the author is getting at is that a little folly makes a fool. A little folly makes a fool. He's saying that it doesn't matter how much wisdom you have, how much honor, how much respect you have, that one moment of folly is going to make you a fool. And in some ways, this goes against how we intuitively think about foolishness. And we would say that doing something stupid or having a lapse in judgment, it's just a moment of foolishness. It doesn't actually make you a fool. But the author is pointing out that folly is much more ingrained um, than that view of, of folly. At some point, you, you don't just have a moment of lying. It actually reveals that you are a liar. Uh, you don't murder someone and just have like a moment of murder. You are a murderer. And so these moments reveal something much more pervasive than just a temporary state of mind or an instance of forgetfulness, which is how the author, I think, wants us to understand folly. If you've ever acted foolishly, even for had a moment of folly, it might actually be revealing that you are, in fact, a fool. Now, this is obviously really humbling because it flips our understanding of wisdom and folly. We may think, well, I'm mostly wise, uh, but I have my foolish moments. When in reality, I think the author is pointing out because of how much uh, folly outweighs wisdom, it, it's more accurate to say, I'm mostly a fool, and by the grace of God, I have some moments of wisdom. Now, I think that where this is important is that it, it helps us understand uh, God and his infinite wisdom. And so true and ultimate wisdom, which, which only God has, is void of any folly. And so God never has and he never will have any moments of foolishness. There'll never have any lapses in judgment. That would make God not wise. It would actually make him a fool. And so I think the reason why the author starts the passage with this proverb is because it, it cuts through any posturing on our part as the reader to not listen and maybe check out because we don't think that we're the fool that the author is talking about. And the reality, though, is that there is no us in them. Like, there's no us, we're wise, and those are the fools over them, it, it, over there. It, it's all of us as fools to varying degrees of foolishness, and then there's God. And so that's the conversation that we have as we read this passage. Look at how the author expands on this in verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And so this idea of right and left uh, is really synonymous during the time of this writing with, with what is strong and what is weak, what is good and what is bad, respectively. And so the Latin word sinister actually means left. 
And so the idea is straightforward and actually a reiteration of some of the themes that we've seen in Ecclesiastes so far. And those who are wise are, are drawn to, inclined to do what is right and what is good. Those who are fools are drawn to and inclined to what is bad or what is evil. And the author is talking about wisdom and folly, not just as these external fruits that you can produce. He's saying that it's actually from the heart, whether it's a heart of wisdom or a heart of folly, that's going to be directing and steering the actions and decisions of a person. And we often think that it's the choices that we make that determine whether we're wise or we're a fool. But in reality, it's deeply set within our hearts whether hearts, uh, the hearts are of wisdom or hearts are of folly. You see some of this and this theme uh, in places like Proverbs 22, verse 15. It says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. We're essentially born as fools. It, it's bound up. It's kind of knit and woven into the fabric of who we are as children. It's the reason why, as a child, I stapled my hand together, right? Not thinking that it would be painful. It's the reason why I stuck a paperclip in an outlet, right? It's the reason why I ate an entire jar of honey that I brought to school for show and tell, and to this day, honey makes me gag, right? We have uh, rules for children, uh, that are based in wisdom because children are inherently fools. And so if you go to a public swimming pool, they say don't run around the pool because it's slick and it's a wet surface and you're going to fall and bust your head. We say don't run with scissors because you might fall and stab yourself. We say don't eat your pizza upside down because the toppings are going to fall off. That's a rule. It's a rule of wisdom in the Moore household that I have to constantly tell my foolish children. And so as we look at the folly of man, right? What we're seeing so far is that folly is really potent. Uh, a little folly is going to outweigh wisdom. And, and that folly is not just a fruit that you produce, but it actually originates within your heart. But I think as, we're, as we read through this passage, the most disturbing thing about folly is seen in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. What this means is that even when a fool is where he's supposed to be, right? So he's on the road. He, he's not meandering through the woods. He's not off the beaten path like maybe a typical fool would be. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing in the place where he's supposed to be. Um, and there's still a level of senselessness and foolishness that is so pervasive that he communicates it to everyone else. Like say, hey, I'm a fool without even needing to say, hey, I'm a fool. The scary thing here is the level of sheer blindness and obliviousness that the fool has in his own folly. A fool never, ever has awareness of their own foolishness. Proverbs 12:15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. So even when they are absolutely wrong, living foolishly and self-destructively, the fool will think that they are absolutely right and they'll blame everything and everyone else in their life for the misfortune that they experience. That, Mercy House, is the scary reality of folly. We often think of folly as being, uh, as being uh, or being a fool as being dull or being silly or maybe acting like a child. But the folly that the Bible speaks of are those who are delusional in their thinking, incapable of recognizing that delusion 
And then that delusion, uh, uh, the, the product of that delusion, uh, becomes catastrophic for them and their life. One of my fears, my personal fears, is getting Alzheimer's. I saw uh, my Nana uh, suffer with Alzheimer's uh, before she passed away. Um, Alzheimer's, dementia, the, the, the fear of losing your mind and your grip on reality, but not being aware that you're losing it. That's like a terrible fear of mine. And horrifyingly, as I'm reading this, I'm realizing this is how Scripture likens the fool in his folly. And so this understanding of folly at the very least, should bring us to a place of wisdom, enough to ask God, is there any place where I'm being a fool? Is there anywhere that, that I think that I'm right? I'm 100% sure that I'm right, but I might actually be dangerously wrong. Where am, I de- uh, where am I living a delusion? Now, these aren't very pleasant ponderings. I, I, I think uh, a, a very natural knee-jerk reaction to this, if you're not running to God and, and asking him for wisdom, is to start examining our own lives, kind of running a self-test. Uh, what does my life look like? Uh, does my life look like that of a fool's? And this idea of being foolishly delusional is really scary, but does my life actually look like that of a disillusioned fool? And as we look around, we might think, well, all right, things don't look too bad. Like, my life does not look like that of a fool. The problem of this, though, is twofold. One, uh, again, folly is going to originate in the heart. It's, it's not always something that's external and able to be seen. And two, our position uh, or our station in life do not make us immune to the delusion of the fool. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. The author points out another glitch in the system, as he, as he has been, um, as he's looking at the world and, and throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And Robert and I have both used this language of a glitch. It's taken from the Bible Project's two-part um, podcast on Ecclesiastes, which is great, highly recommend it. Uh, and in that podcast, they refer to glitches, uh, w- which the author discovers as he's looking around in the world. And these are things that are unfair, unjust, things that just aren't right as they relate to the, 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 the created order of things in the world. And, and this is one of those glitches, that some rulers and leaders in positions of power are absolute fools. And some of the wisest people that we might know uh, walk around the world as, as common folk. And so the implied argument here is that it's wise people, both in heart and in actions, who should be the ones in positions of leadership and, and, and power. It shouldn't be those who are fools. But alas, this is something uh, that we see even today under the sun. And so uh, here's the reality of discerning whether or not you're a fool. It's possible for you to be on the road. Remember, so where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's possible that uh, you're successful, uh, both fiscally and positionally, commanding wealth, commanding power. It's possible that uh, you examine your life and you see all of that and still be an absolute fool, thinking that you're right but living a delusion. And as we examine ourselves for folly, I think the author of Ecclesiastes would say, don't try to hide behind your success. 
Don't hide behind your position, your job, your degree, your family, your house, your hobby, your accolades, your relationships. Don't hide behind any worldly crown or job title because fools come in all shapes, sizes, and socioeconomic statuses. And like a dead fly spoils perfume, like a nasty hair is going to spoil any meal, your moments of folly are going to outweigh any wisdom and honor that your position or your possessions might point to. And some of us know this and have experienced this in a really deep and personal way. And so the delusion of folly is deeply ingrained in us. It directs our decisions and no position or accomplishment is able to hide it. And, and if you're like me at this point, you might be thinking, well, this, this stinks. <laughs> let's just wisen up a little bit. Let's buckle down, figure out this folly thing. Let, let's just be thoughtful, right? Let's just be prudent and, and just be wise. Like that is the solution to being a fool is to be wise. The problem with this, though, is that even with the best intentions, we're still susceptible to being fools. Wisdom cannot save us from our folly. Uh, look, at, look at verses uh, 8 through 11. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who carries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The author is no longer talking about blatant, uh, the blatant and obvious fool who everyone can kind of clearly see is a fool, even if they themselves can't. The author shifts, and, and he looks with some irony uh, uh, in how foolish humans actually are. In verses 8 and 9, he's talking about people who are working in their profession, people who are doing their jobs, not the typical fool that we see in Scripture as a lazy sluggard folding their hands and not working. And so you have these people who are seemingly not fools. They're, they're, they're going about their day, they're at their job, they're doing their work, only to have that backfire on them and hurt them. And this is one of those glitches that we talked about. This is another glitch. It shouldn't be this way. Those who go to work and do what they're supposed to be doing should not be penalized or hurt in that process. The irony is that the person who's digging a pit is well aware of where the pit is and, and, and the danger of falling into that pit. A person who's quarrying stones doesn't need to be told to be careful because they know how dangerous it is to work with giant heavy stones. An arborist, right, as someone whose profession it is to cut down trees, knows how dangerous a chainsaw is while they're using it. Yet under the sun, this is what this passage is pointing out, we see examples all the time of people being foolish in the one realm where they're supposed to be an expert. And that's what the author is pointing out, that even with our best intentions, even with years of experience, even with the expert knowledge and all the wisdom, we still have moments of folly. And we know these moments are moments of folly because we typically articulate it right away, right? So if you do something that you know was foolish, you say, that was so stupid of me. You say, I, I knew I shouldn't have done that. Or what was I even thinking, right? If I was in my right frame of mind, I wouldn't have done that. Or I knew better than to do that. Or I can't believe I just did that. 
And so we're, we're you know, the, the things, it makes me think of the story where recently in the summer I went camping um, and my father-in-law, he's like a camper extraordinaire. Right? They, they do an awesome job camping. Um, and I had a propane tank on my trailer. And I remember him telling me, right, he was like, I always, uh, I always use um, a, an extra latch around this. I'll, 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 I'll tie it up to make sure that nothing falls off on the highway or anything crazy like that. And so I'm packing on this propane tank and I have that thought, and I, you know, I use the, the system that secures it down, and I shake it, and I was like, this feels pretty secure, right? And we're driving like two hours on the highway, and on the highway, I remember looking over, and this huge truck is like laying on his horn, like just laying on his horn, looking at me horrified. And he's like, pull over. Like, I can't read lips, but I can read that. He's like, pull over. So we pull over, and I get out, and the canister had come loose. And the canister was literally laying on the ground. It was kicking between my trailer and my car, just like bouncing around. It was all scuffed up. It was hissing because it was leaking. I have pictures of this, if you don't believe me. It was terrifying, right? And I just kind of stood there in a moment of like, I'm an idiot, right? Like, I knew I should have secured this thing. Like, my father-in-law told me to secure this thing. I told Caitlin what happened, and she, like, starts having a panic attack because, like, we could have died, like the, it could have shot out and hit another car. It could have been an explosion. It could have been really bad. And so like we're stunned when we have these moments of foolishness. Like how, why did I just, like I knew that I shouldn't have done that. And so we, we still have moments where we think that we're right. We think that we're just taking like a calculated risk. Like it won't be that bad. And then it just blows up in our face, maybe literally. See, we're, 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 fool, we're fools at heart. Uh, and we can't hide this reality uh, with our position, our possessions. Uh, we can't hide from folly just by trying to be wise. And so what do we do? I, I think that it's tempting to just, to just hide, uh, to, because we can't hide from our folly, to just throw our hands up in the air and say, fine, like, I, I'm just going to be a fool. Uh, so be it. Like, let's just truck forward in life kind of living in the delusion of folly since there's nothing else that we can do about it. Like, why even worry if we can't change the fact that we're a fool? And so many times, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes kind of, kind of br he brings us to this edge uh, of, of where we want to just kind of quit and jump off in despair and discouragement. And he tugs on our shirt and he says, hold on a second, hold on. And verses 10 and 11 do this. Verses 10 and 11 give us a bit of sobering encouragement. And, and, and though we're fools at heart and, and we can't ever be immune to folly, uh, even when we try our hardest, there's still value in wisdom. Look at verse 10. If the iron is blunt uh, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one succeed. He's saying, look, no one is immune to folly, but the arborist is still going to oil and sharpen his chainsaw before he goes to work. The, the quarry master is still going to follow OSHA's regulations because wisdom still has value and it still helps us succeed under the sun. And I think the author wants us to see and acknowledge the pervasiveness of our folly, but also still be able to value wisdom and the idea that when wisdom is applied, it still can mitigate some of the effects of folly, just not all the time. It can't be the savior. And so the author goes on to say, not only should you still use wisdom, if you don't, there are consequences. In verse 10, the consequence of not sharpening the edge of your axe uh, is that it will require more energy and more effort to accomplish your task. 
in verse 11, he's referencing an ancient and kind of strange profession of snake charming. He says, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Essentially, if you don't use the wisdom you have from your expertise, and this is the charmer's ability to charm a snake, uh, you're going to suffer the otherwise avoidable uh, consequence, and, and your wisdom there then is just completely useless. And, and while snake charming isn't a degree at UMass, the, the, the principle is, is understood. If you have wisdom and you have an opportunity to use it, uh, but you choose not to, that's like an ultimate folly. And verses 10 and 11 remind us that uh, when we don't use wisdom, at best, it's going to create more work for us, like using an unsharpened axe. Uh, and at worst, it can, it can have life-threatening consequences uh, like the snake charmer. And so the wisdom uh, can't save us. The wisdom can't save us, but it's still valuable. And this is kind of the, 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 the point that the author continues to circle back to throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. At the end of the day, I think it's possible for us to get lost in our thoughts a little bit. It's possible to get stuck in this feedback loop of examining ourselves for folly, maybe even obsessing over how we've been foolish, um, and honestly just thinking too much about folly. And though it's incredibly pervasive and, and has really serious consequences, the ultimate display of our folly is not in our actions or whether or not we look like a fool. The ultimate display of our folly is going to be in our words. And look at verse 12 uh, through 15. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of words uh, of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. The author turns to the words of the wise and the words of the foolish, and he draws this first distinction in verse 12. He says, the words of the wise man uh, win him favor, uh, but the lips of a fool consume him. I want you to no notice the outward and the inward difference in the power of words for the wise and the foolish. The wise man's mouth is, is, is focused outward, and he's using the power of his words to, to build up and to encourage to speak life. And that's, that's how he's winning favor with other people, with those that are around him. You don't win favor by talking about yourself, uh, by talking about your own ideas, by flattering yourself, by incessantly sharing what you think or what your opinion is. And it's not to say that these things are inherently bad. There's obviously a time uh, to share and be vulnerable and be transparent. But look at the lips uh, of the fool. Verse 12 again, it says, The lips of the fool consume him. So instead of aiming to encourage, to build up others, and winning favor, and winning favor as a byproduct, um, his words bring about his own destruction. If you've ever experienced your words making your life uh, more difficult, then you know what the author's talking about here. And if you've ever had a moment where you're just talking yourself into a hole, like just digging yourself deeper and deeper with every word uh, that you speak, then you can definitely resonate with this. But, more often than not, since the fool is always right in their own eyes and they're oblivious to the self-destructiveness of their own words, you're not going to be able to see this. And so these are the people that we might be able to observe externally, people that we know and interact with that might just keep on talking and talking, right? Their words multiply, verse 14. 
And what begins is just simple foolishness. If you let them talk long enough, uh, and the, the fool is going to devolve into madness. I think that this talking, right, it doesn't even have to be out loud. And so this could be a cycle of conversation and thoughts that circle inside your head, that multiply and swirl and, and, and just continues to consume you until you feel like you're just going mad. That's what the author is getting at. And here's kind of the, the finishing thought to just wrap up this little section. Something deeply sad and deeply profound. It's really worth some pondering. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. The life of the fool is a delusional mess hidden from no one uh, except themselves. They're enslaved to their folly, living lives of weary toil every day of their life. They are utterly lost with no idea how to get home. You don't laugh at fools. You don't talk about fools behind their backs or use their folly to make yourself feel better. As Christians, we, we ought to be weeping for them. We pray for them. We love them, knowing that we ourselves have been blind, enslaved, weary, and lost ourselves. One of the things that we should ask when we see a theme focused on in Scripture so repeatedly is why? Why would the author of Ecclesiastes spend so much time focusing on the fool here in chapter 10? Why make such a big deal about being a fool. It's because being a fool is, is not like acting dull or acting like a child and uh, as something that can just be brushed off lightly. Being a fool, de delusional, blind, weary, and lost has dire consequences, both under the sun in this world and in this life, but also under heaven in the life to come. At the end of the day, the most dangerously foolish thing that a fool can do is, is not found in a bad decision that they make or saying something stupid with their words. It's actually in a small, quiet confession deep inside of themselves. And you see this in Psalm 14, 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is focused on so much in Ecclesiastes because the fool represents what is the greatest folly of man, rejecting God, both his existence or the nature of his existence. And this folly is deeply rooted in our human existence through the ages. Adam and Eve, the first fools to walk the earth, they were fools when they rejected the goodness of God in the garden and disobeyed him. Abraham was a fool when he rejected the power of God by fearing Pharaoh, and he lied about the fact that his wife was his sister. Moses was a fool when he rejected the faithfulness of God. David was a fool because he rejected the holiness of God. And Peter was a fool because he rejected the fellowship with God. If you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing the words of Ecclesiastes call you a fool, call you out for being a fool, know that you're in good company. As you read through scripture, it is littered with fools who at one point or another were guilty of the greatest folly of rejecting God. If you've been following along this morning, you may recognize a striking similarity between the fool and the sinner. All men are foolish, just like all men are sinners. 
Even when we're wise and honorable, uh, just a little folly spoils it. It's just the same with sin, as any amount is going to taint the perfect righteousness of God. Folly is not something that we do. It's deeply woven into our hearts uh, as children, just like how we are broken by sin. Our life circumstances, our position, our possessions, they can't shield us from the effects of folly in the same way that they cannot shield us from the effects of sin. In our folly, we consume ourselves, are weary all the days of our lives, and are utterly blind and lost with no way home. That's exactly the way it is in our sin. The author of Ecclesiastes doesn't really have an answer for these glitches he sees in the system, only encouragements to trust in God and hopeful expectations. Well, we as Christians, we know the fulfillment of that hope. And we know that the fulfillment of that hope is Jesus Christ. God becoming a man to rescue us from our foolishness and our sinfulness, to bring healing to our foolish and sinful hearts, to restore sight to our blind eyes, to give us rest in our weariness, and to bestow on us his wisdom and his righteousness to cover our folly and our sin. This is the incredible, awesome news of Jesus Christ. If you're a fool this morning, hurting, weary, and lost, know that Jesus has made a way for you to experience healing, rest, and rescue. It's extended to you as a free gift for the taking. You take the step uh, by, by making a confession. And you see this in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The wisest thing that you can do under the sun and under heaven is to acknowledge God as God. And if you have nothing else, you join the, the, the wisest people under the sun of having that one piece of knowledge. And the beautiful thing is that it can be done with a small, quiet confession deep inside of your heart. The same place that says there is no God can say that there is a God. If you want to learn more about this, I encourage you to talk to someone at Mercy House. Uh, send us a message. We have a page on our website, mercyhouse365.org slash respond, and it walks you through what it means to have this wisdom, uh, and it allows us to reach out to you if you want to talk to somebody. Others of us uh, who have been rescued from our delusion of folly, uh, who have experienced healing and who have been given eyes that can see the folly uh, that we're enslaved to, I think the application for us is stop acting like a fool. <laughs> and this might sound really harsh, but I think we see it in Scripture, Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So how can we who have been given eyes to see still live neck deep in foolishness and sin as if we were still blind to it? The biggest difference for us now is that we can see it. We, we have an awareness of folly. We have an awareness of sin. And this is exactly what Ecclesiastes 10 and 11 are saying. If, if you have wisdom, then use it. Sharpen your axe and set yourself up for success under the sun and under heaven. So what does this mean practically for the Christian? Well, it means to sharpen your spiritual axe, to stop slogging through life with a dull blade every single week. Read God's word, pray to God, engage in Christian community, be on mission and make disciples. 
Galatians 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Mercy House, if you love Jesus, if you've been rescued by Jesus, you are free. So go, therefore, is what we see in Scripture. So will you still have moments of folly? Absolutely. Will you still stumble and have moments of sin? Most likely. Moments where you know better, like you knew you should have uh, avoided this, or you knew you thought that you were taking a calculated risk and, and that you were being right in your own eyes. Moments where you, may, you maybe downplay the severity of a folly or of sin, and in those moments, as you turn your eyes toward Jesus and away from the foolishness and sin, there is absolute grace and forgiveness. Those of us who are in Christ are no longer defined by our folly, we're no longer defined by our sin. We are defined by Christ, and our identity is hid with him. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word um, Lord, that, that is uh, full of wisdom and insight. God, we confess that we are fools. Um, we see this in moments where we, maybe we open the Bible. We just don't comprehend the, the depth and the riches of your wisdom, God. But we thank you for your spirit that you've given us uh, that allows us to, to understand that you have revealed uh, the, the mystery of the gospel to us um, and that there's more. Uh, there's more sweet, um, savory, delicious uh, meat here to be, to be had as we read your word. And so I pray for us uh, as we uh, confront some of the areas where we might be a fool. Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to see that uh, and to repent, God. I pray for those who, um, who don't know you, God, and pray that you would allow them to have the, the ultimate piece of wisdom, which is knowledge and an understanding of you. So, Father, we thank you that though we were once blind, weary, lost, uh, with no way home, God, um, that you've opened our eyes, that, that you energize us, uh, with the gospel, that we are found in Christ, um, and that we can look to our home in heaven, God. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.